All right. Uh, thanks again, everybody. Uh, thank you, Dr. Forbes, Dr. Canada, and uh, maybe Dr. Cooper will find his way into the meeting at some point, but uh, thanks everybody for joining us. Um, really excited to have this panel. We've been working on this, uh, what I'll call money and medicine initiative for quite some time. Uh, had a little bit of fun this past Saturday night recognizing Robert Frederick for his leadership with the group and happy to see uh, Dean, um, Christian and Jessica carrying the torch forward um, for the group as well. Um, so uh, if everybody's ready, I'm just gonna jump right in to the questions. Um, Dr. Forbes, I'm gonna go to you first. Sure. Um, feel free to give any background about yourself before sure. um, you answer the question, but um, uh, could you talk to us a little bit about the different administrative positions you've held um, as a physician and maybe talk a little bit about how physicians can be effective in those roles? Sure, absolutely. Happy to and, and glad to be here tonight. Um, first of all, just let me correct one thing. Um, it, my title's a little bit unusual. It's an executive vice president over what we call the academic group. I am essentially a chief operating officer over about 80% of the operations for Methodist Le Bonheur Healthcare. I oversee hospitals, service lines, physician enterprise, et cetera. So it's a very operational function. And that's not where my career started though. I am a uh, family physician by background, came out of residency, started my own practice, grew it to a group practice and uh, also started PHOs and IPAs and other things. And that's really how I ended up in a leadership role outside of my former clinical practice. And I, I often joke and call myself the accidental physician executive because none of us go to medical school thinking someday I'm gonna grow up and be a heck of a physician executive. You know, we often think we're gonna be the best clinician we can possibly be. And there's times that our talents are needed for other things as well. And so for me, uh, not only did I start off with starting my own practice and having to understand the business functions of running a practice growing it in a very competitive market, which was Cleveland, Ohio. And I had the Cleveland Clinic and university hospitals all trying to do different things. And we were trying to survive that strategy. I also served as a, um, a chair of family medicine and then ultimately a medical director of one of our sites. And my journey just blossomed from there where I've served as um, both a, a chief medical officer and a chief operating officer for smaller organizations, very large systems. I've been a CEA, CEO of a, um, a physician enterprise and an executive vice president out in Texas over an academic organization, one of the universities of Texas. And uh, so I've done a lot of things in my career. This particular position really combined a lot of the things that I had been through with my experiences as both a clinician, but, but certainly in all my leadership roles. And that's what appealed to me to take this job at Methodist Le Bonheur, because I do have academics that falls under me. So GME and UGME and our academic relationships and partnerships as well. And you know it balances quality, safety, and clinical outcomes, and then truly the business functions of what we do as an organization. And you know, to Clint's question, you have all these different hats that you wear. You get an opportunity such as what I'm in right now, where I bring it all together. You know, I think there's a lot of uh, potential for physicians to bring significant skill and expert expertise to the table. Because again, as I said, we understand that clinical component. We tend to put the, the patient at the center of everything we do. And then we know how to collaborate and build those teams to help solve some of our issues that we face on a regular basis. I can make quite a case for uh, return on investment in the business case for quality outcomes. That's not oftentimes something you see in a chief operating officer. And I think that's one of the things that a physician brings to the table as well. You know, I think, and, and I'll be curious to hear what my colleagues say, but you know, it's interesting when you take a journey and you move into more of a full-time administrative role, I know I stay board certified and licensed because it's important to me, it's my DNA. I'm never gonna give that up even though I have business uh, training and, and uh, degrees as well. But I always tell myself every day, I continue to contribute and I'm hopefully making a difference at a different level. Mm 
And I'm there to advocate for the patients, but for the physicians and the providers and the clinical care delivery teams, looking for how we do that best given the resources that we have. And I think that's what a physician that's a leader can do very effectively. Well, it, that's a good response. And it made me think, you know, all three of our panelists um, have been physician executives for quite a while. And it's probably fair to say that once you show that you're good and you get on that train, they don't let you off. When you uh, are a physician or a skilled physician and a skilled uh, administrator and executive, um, it's really helpful um, to um, a healthcare entity and um, it tends to make you highly valuable and highly um, coveted as a leader. Um, Dr. Canada, anything you would like to add to that? Well, well sure, I'll just give you a little my my background. It's uh, yeah. a, a little bit, everybody has different paths that they follow. I, I'm a, a, a still a clinical nephrologist, I practice I still practice medicine more than what's on paper, but uh, uh, but I, I still practice a lot. And uh, so my journey into administration, I think, started. I joined the faculty. Oh, it's been twenty between twenty and no, almost twenty years ago, and uh, I, I got interested in you know how our billing systems worked, and uh, you know it just you know, would make suggestions, we need to make changes to do it better. And so I, I ended up being, uh, we had a change in leadership and an interim chief for the D division of nephrology. And uh, so I kind of, uh, I got my first taste of administration uh, that way. And then soon after I became, uh, uh, I, I showed interest to our our former CMO or chief medical officer for, it was called UT Medical Group at the time, University of Clinical Health now, uh, in, in um, helping him or, or working with him. And uh, so I took an associate chief medical officer job, again, still practicing, but uh, would assist the chief medical officer and various uh, different things. He ended up uh, retiring after uh, several years. And then I took on the role of uh, chief, chief medical officer. I, uh, the, the role within my group, uh, it's a approximately, I'll say 130 physician group. Uh, it's a, it's a part-time role. Um, I tend to, I, well, I head up sort of the quality, uh, initiatives within the organization. And we have, we have several, uh, a lot of, a lot of it focused on primary care, but uh, it, but it goes throughout the out the organization, and, and there's a team of people that help help do that. It's not not just me. Uh, and then I, uh, along with that, I do lead the clinical part of our division of nephrology. So I I, I sort of uh, kind of decide. Well, I decide who's on call, but also the bigger issues of what where are we going to grow, what are we going to do. Um, and uh, I had to, to to make the budget work. We had to make ends meet, and uh, we can't uh, spend more than we uh, bring in. So uh, that's a that's a large part of uh, uh, what I do with that. Well, I I want to stick a pin in something very brief that you said around making suggestions because I think there's going to be a theme in that when we get to a later question. Uh, I'm gonna stay with you, Dr. Canada, for the next question, because you did bring up finance in your answer. Um, so the name of this group, as Dean mentioned, is Money and Medicine. Uh, can you talk about how important finance is in your current role, and then where you went to get the training and education that you needed in finance to be successful where you are now? Sure, so it's in my own practice, the small group of nephrologists, it's very important. We have to, uh, uh, you know, we have to pay our, our physicians and our, our staff, of, you know, market wages or otherwise they leave and we have high turnover, which costs the organization lots of money, uh, but you can't do that without, you know, the, the, the money or, you know, your billings coming in. Uh, so you do have to have a good understanding of how that, process works and have goals for your, your physicians and then they need to understand uh, those goals and how, how things uh, work. And 
I try to provide regular feedback uh, to our physicians on how they're doing with where their productivity and, and how we're doing with, with controlling expenses within our group. For the larger organization, it, it's uh, very important. Uh, if you don't have a bottom line, you can't, uh, I mean, so bottom lines, if you don't have a profit, you can't expand and grow and hire new physicians. Uh, so where did I get the training? You know, that's an interesting uh, question. I I ended up soon after I joined the faculty, I, you know, I went straight through biology degree in college, med school fellowship, excuse me, residency fellowship. And uh, so I started on the faculty and I said, well, I, you know, I love seeing patients. I like teaching, but what, you know, am I going to be, you know, an expert or, or you know, kind of what's going to be my niche. And uh, so I started in an epidemiology program through UT and thought, well, you know, maybe this, I could do some, you know, clinical trials with drugs or, or, you know, population-based or data set-based research. Um, well, I, I, I finished the degree and, uh, but my career kind of took a different turn in the middle of, it took me several years. And I ended up taking as an elective and the program was very flexible and they let me take uh, healthcare finance classes uh, uh, and uh, uh, healthcare economics. And uh, I ended up just taking an accounting, accounting 201 or 101 uh, online just to be able to kind of talk the lingo and understand what was going on in different meetings and understand my own, uh, you know, my own income statement and the balance sheet for the organization. Uh, and uh, so it, it it's very helpful. Say if your your practice wants to, if you're in a larger organization and your practice wants to buy, you know, a big piece of equipment, you know, to understand you're going to capitalize that expense and depreciate it over, you know, years rather than, you know, it, just to have that baseline knowledge to be able to talk to your to your um, administrators. In my role, I try to bridge that gap uh, uh, between you know physicians and and the administrative uh, group uh, and try to bring some language you know, that both parties uh, you know understand. Right, um, Dr. Forbes. How about you? How did you gain some of that? Uh, financial acumen that you have. I, I suspect uh, running a private practice might have been a little bit of trial by fire <laughs> from uh, from that standpoint, but I'll, I'll let you uh, share that. Yeah, a little incentive to understand some of that business side by running your own practice and trying to grow it. It's not very fun when you tap into your own home equity line of credit to cover the malpractice bill that came due, oh, but wow. it happens when you do a private practice and then when you uh, want growth, et cetera. As I grew that practice, um, I realized that um, I learned the techniques of cost accounting, had a software program, I could do my own financial statements, et cetera. So I gained that expertise you know, by uh, jumping right into the fire and, and that's not atypical of when you, you when you have a group practice. Um, it was really when I became involved, I, I was on the board of the Cleveland Clinic for a while. As I was handed uh, financial statements in my board packets, I had no idea how to really interpret those and what, should, what are the indicators I should be looking at if I'm gonna contribute significantly to a conversation. And so it was then that I went ahead and sought some formalized education. Uh, first became a certified physician executive through the American College of Physician Executives, which is now known as the American Association of Physician Leaders, so Apple. Um, and that had very rich courses for um, on, uh, accounting, for finance management, uh, and that helped me a great deal. In fact, you had to pass those exams to become a certified physician executive. Um, but as my career grew, and I had a lot of focus on things such as uh, Brad commented on understanding, you know, you have an operational budget, a capital budget, you had to plan for those, how do you allocate appropriately, and then going back to the business case for anything that you want to invest in, what does that return on investment look like? I needed some more help with that, clearly. And so I have my master's in healthcare administration, and certainly that helps you understand some of that additional information. 
Now I have colleagues that don't have the formalized degree and they took to it like a fish to water. I needed that additional assistance so I, I could be sure. Um, maybe it's the pedantic undergrad in me that was a chemical engineering major that said, I gotta know the numbers, but I really needed to understand the formulas and be able to use them. So important, you can't do anything. I once worked for a sister of uh, St. Francis um, she was the uh, head of uh, a board of a big organization, sorry, and that particular sister often said, and Brad alluded to this, no margin, no mission. And so even though we put the patient at the center of everything we do, you still have to count those numbers because you cannot invest into your future without it. Well, that's, uh, that's good insight. And uh, wouldn't it have been awesome if y'all would have had a money in medicine program when you were medical students? I'm so uh, jealous. Yes, <laughs> great. I, I totally agree. I was going to comment earlier and it left my <laughs> mind. I, I think this group is great. I, I, I think it's very, very worthwhile. Well, thanks again uh, for y'all being here. So um, Dr. Forbes, uh, staying with you. So, uh, and Dr. Canada mentioned this earlier, at least when I said stick a pin in it around making suggestions to administration, but when you decided you wanted to go in administration, what did you do to prepare yourself? And then at some point you have to let other people know that you're interested. And that's kind of what I was getting at with Dr. Canada's comment is sometimes when you start making suggestions, that's, you're either a pest or an opportunity to be a new leader is usually <laughs> how that's interpreted. So uh, yeah. what, what's the story around that for you? Yeah, and you know, that's such a great question. In fact, I, I mentor some of those up and coming physician executives and they'll always ask, how do you get involved? Well, you just hit it, which is, you know, you speak up, you start asking questions, you show interest, you be there. That's one of the best ways to get involved, but sometimes that's still not enough. And I often recommend that you get yourself involved in some formalized groups like this. When you're part of a hospital medical staff, you know, raise your hand when it's time to join the quality committee or some type of committee there, be present, be involved. Again, the medical associations are a great way to, you know, to learn the skills and to be relevant and be seen and grow as a leader. You guys are already working on your leadership skills. And, you know, frankly, we all have a leader in us and your path in the future. You don't know it yet, but there'll be lots of twists and turns to your careers. And you're going to decide what skill set and your talents will take you where with your career. And I think if people really have interest and they want to be involved and engaged, and that's the secret, you want to be engaged, you know, just make your presence known. And then once I did that, I, of course, you know, made sure that I, I developed some of the skills necessary to effectively communicate. And there's lots of training to do that as well. You know, but I let people know I wasn't shy and I wasn't, I was always willing to take on an assignment because I learned from it. And then I got to know people. And then uh, the other thing I would say, um, Clint, I think this is so true, network network, network. It goes a long way. All those hours where sometimes you're like, I can't go to one more cocktail party. Sometimes you just have to, because that's how you make those connections. Great, great point, Sarah, about networking. And that's, um, that's honestly, it should be the easiest part, but it's one of the hardest parts because to your point, it's time consuming and you're and they're tired. The, you guys yeah. get tired. I know. Yeah. <laughs> End of the day. Um, uh, Dr. Canada, how about you? Well, I, I agree with certainly with Dr. Dr. Forbes is be present, be be inquisitive, uh, you know, be involved. Uh, I think that's how people, you know, in the ranks above you, they 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 know there's going to be a, a succession plan, and they know they need people to move into the ranks, and uh, so they're going to look around and say, who. Uh, you know, who would be good for this? And if you're, if you're around and present and on committees and speak up, uh, they're going to look at you. Good, good points. Um, so we've been dancing all around the topic of communication skills. Um, you know, it's, and y'all have touched on this already, you know, we assume that, that physicians who communicate well can help bridge that gap between the mindset of a traditional physician um, and those of a, a administrator, perhaps without a medical degree, 
what has worked well for y'all in that area? Um, Dr. Forbes, we'll go to you first. Yeah, that's such a great question. And you made me think of something that um, this is one of those courses I teach at uh, ACPE and ACHE, some of the professional organizations that, uh, you know, some of your leaders attend. And, uh, you know, as a physician, we get a lot of credibility. You know, people assume that we're competent and we know what we're talking about. And so they listen to us. Um, but the other thing is they can also be fearful of us. And one of my biggest pieces of advice for you as you enter, you know, your careers and really think about this, always think about two things. And Dr. Amy Cuddy writes about this. She's written a book about called Presence. You know, make sure that you're approachable. Make sure that you're somebody that listens. Make sure that you know when you're communicating, it's not only about the words. It's about your body language and how you're being, if you're being receptive to people, etc. So there's some things you've got to know as a leader, you're judged very significantly in the first 90 seconds. And the first thing they're going to think about is, are you warm? Can I trust you? Are you somebody that's approachable? And, this, and are you listening to me? And the second thing is the competence. Are you competent? So if the you as a physician, they know you're competent. They, they figured that one out. They want to know that you're listening to them. So one of the best things you can do as a communicator, be open and listen. You know, I, we can go into all sorts of conversations about what's involved with that, but I have found being a really good listener and hearing people first makes a big difference. Being open and receptive to conversations, whether they're good conversations or potentially challenging conversations. And I think the other thing on the other side of communication, part of my job, I've been the incident commander for COVID for two years for the health system. And it's a lot of work. I, I'm pretty sure no one wants to hear from me anymore because I've communicated and I've communicated and I've communicated, you know, with uh, written communication, email communication, town halls, you name it. We have lots of communication, but I still get stopped in my tracks after we've communicated something six times and I get an email saying, I don't quite understand. Did you tell us this? And it's because people have so many other things on their minds. You frankly cannot over communicate, especially if it's something really significant and you need to get that message out there. Be consistent. Um, Dr. Canada, you know, one thing that you said earlier that kind of, you know, stuck with me is, you know, if you're this question might be a little bit different if you're still actively practicing in a clinical environment. Does does that change the the response at all? And just any additional comments you have on it? I, I you know I do think you know when I talk to my colleagues in my group, the the fact that I'm still practicing does give me some credibility. Uh, just because I'm I'm down there in the trenches or or whatever with them every every day, so uh, I I think that that is you know a little a little something. I at some point I'm going to go to a course where Dr. Forbes is teaching and take her communication uh, class because I I will say I've struggled with this and I I don't have formal training in in, in communication. I. I've read some and certainly I, I have to practice it all the time on on how to best communicate in different situations, whether it's, you know, OK, we've got to talk to uh, our accounting department, you know, about this new initiative and how do we make the, you know, how do we make the financial case or I've got to talk to the group of physicians about uh, you know, why we need to change certain processes in the clinic, you know, and other things I, I've, you know, sometimes you have to have difficult conversations and these are typically one-on-one or to, to, to just small groups is say, if you've got a troubled physician, uh, whether it's, it's behavior uh, with, you know, staff or, or, or just behavior within the hospital or something, you know, you have to have those those difficult conversations, and 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 uh, I agree. I think trying to listen, um, uh, you know, and see see their point of view, and uh, a lot of times there are root other, you know, this behavior problems are 
or, or a symptom of some other problem going on and and trying to find trying to get to the root of whether it's substance abuse or or whatever it is uh, um, but uh that that's certainly uh on my list of learning more about well i think you know things that were common in both your responses or what struck to me was with being relatable in those situations what whatever part of your background you know if you don't have formal training to your point dr canada you've been in the trenches with these folks one way or the other and that alone is a is a place to start with relatability and you know everyone's going to be a first day first year administrator at some point if 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 they're a physician and they go that route and I would think a lot of times for physicians, that training and that experience as a physician is the first place you start um, to be relatable to people. So um, I love that. So y'all, we've, we've painted this rosy picture so far of that, that it's this <laughs> amazing, fantastic, glamorous world. Of, Did we say of, that, Clint? I'm not <laughs> sure we said that. <laughs> Y'all have both smiled a lot while you're talking, so it gives the impression it's this perfect job, Absolutely. and it, it is a great job. I'm I'm being facetious, but uh, there's got to be some things about it that keep you up at night. Um, so, Dr. Canada, can you talk about what those things are, and if you want to put it in the the spirit of if there's something you can snap your fingers and change, either about your job or about healthcare, what would it be? Well, I'll, I'll let I, I I was thinking about this. And let me just give you a couple of very challenging situations or, or eras in my career. Uh, one, I was asked by the the former former dean. Uh, there was the 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 chair. Now I'm a nephrologist, but the, a, a chair of another department had left. And they needed an interim somebody, uh, an interim chair. And he asked me, can you chair this department until we have somebody permanently? And, uh, you know, and I'm not even in the specialty. I won't go to the details of it. But uh, so that was a very challenging, you know, I had certainly lots of, you know, I may be practicing physician, but I, I wasn't in the specialty. And there was a lot of internal turmoil within the department anyway uh, so that was nothing new for the department so i was just kind of thrown in the in the turmoil so we got through it a new chair was hired and it was all okay and i i think we kind of did you know at least stabilize the ship somewhat but there were a lot of sleepless nights and hard conversations and you know uh uh sort of unhappy physicians from the get-go uh so that was that was a little bit of a, if I had to rewind that, I might have skipped that job. <laughs> um, and the other is with my own, uh, say, in my, I, I lead the practice group for nephrology, and we just have, uh, you know, some, we, we've recently had two, two of our nephrologists or, or, or have decided to, to, one's going into full-time research and one is rejoining her husband in another city. So we, we have manpower issues and how are we going to cover those manpower issues, uh, you know, and, and have cover our hospitals and that kind of thing. So I, I, I sit up at night and think about those things. Yeah. Um, Dr. Cooper, welcome. Uh, Apologies for any confusion on that link. We talked about confidence a little bit earlier, and maybe the person that sent you that link might have lacked a little bit when they sent it. So uh, apologies for that, sir. I was waiting to be let in uh, uh, for the last 20 minutes, and I said, let me see if another link was sent. And then, uh, so I apologize for being yeah, uh, No, No worries on that. Um, I, will, I will get you caught up here shortly. Um, uh, so we'll go to Dr. Forbes, and Dr. Cooper will let you answer the question after her. But uh, what keeps you up at night as an administrator, Dr. Forbes, and, and what are those things that you wish you could fix about our healthcare system? Yeah, well, um, I wish the list was short. Um, I tend to believe that uh, a couple things bubble to the surface that do truly keep me up at night. And I know Dr. Coopwood would agree with us, but number one for me, some of our staffing issues that we have at Methodist, and we're not alone. It's something, you know, that is certainly facing all institutions across the country. And I bet it's also impacting other countries the same. 
uh, COVID changed everything for us. You know, people have stepped back and looked at, you know, career paths and what type of uh, uh, professions they want to have, et cetera. And then I think it really magnified, especially our nursing shortages and some of our tech shortages. And uh, it made them uh, very, very desirable in terms of compensation, travel opportunities. And it's become a situation where solving for staffing is a huge issue. You know, when we hit our first year of the pandemic, it was about, okay, reduce volumes, eliminate exposures, try to figure out how to contain this, and then let's return back our volume as carefully as we can. As it progressed into the second year, what we saw instead was, yes, we're going to have to learn to live with this because COVID's here to stay, folks, and we all know that, um, but not obviously as a pandemic, but that's when the staffing shortages really took hold, and we have done a lot of things to make sure that um, we have the appropriate level of staffing, and it's truly been a challenge. So if you want to wake me up in the middle of the night, it tends to be that piece of it. I'd also say, and this is probably me, the incident commander of COVID for Methodist, you know, I, I still think there's a great deal of unpredictability and uh, we don't know. We, we even have, you know, our expert as we look at Dr. Fauci, who's saying, wait a second, I'm not going to any big events. COVID's not done with us yet. And I'm watching numbers, seeing things trend back up again. And it's a bit concerning because we got a little bit of relief. We started taking down the masks. We, we started to feel a little more comfortable gathering. And uh, as we watch the numbers go, will it be another surge? Will it have another impact? Can it affect, affect another aspect of our care delivery systems? Or is it just going to be endemic and we just continue to live with it? I just don't know that answer, but I do worry about that one. Well, certainly understand that from the COVID perspective. Um, Dr. Coopwood, uh, you've, you've been at this for a while. Um, may, maybe it all just kind of rolls off your shoulders now, but are there things that still keep you up at night? Um, yeah, and I, I go back to what was just um, highlighted um, by Dr. Forbes. Um, Staffing is a real critical um, issue that we're all in the healthcare space across this country dealing with. Um, the other piece on the staffing is the cost of labor. Um, you know, pre-pandemic, we were paying nurses $32, $34 an hour. Um, during the height of the probably Omicron pandemic timeframe, the um, agency nurses were commanding you know, $150, $180 an hour. And with the expectation that you know, when COVID went away or, or the, the inpatient volume of COVID goes down, we can get back to some normality. And so we're spending, you know, we probably spent 20, 25 million over what we expected to spend on clinical labor. Um, and we're a one hospital system, essentially. So when you look at multiple hospital systems across this country, here in the community and across this country, it, it's, it's multiplied by that. Um, and, you know, it, 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 it affects your, your finances, it affects your outlooks. Um, and get in, it dips into where you, you're, not, you're not creating um, revenue to, to drop to the bottom line for future investments. Um, and, and so now that you know, our inpatient COVID numbers are essentially negligible compared to where they are, we're still um, paying, you know, nurses anywhere from uh, um, contract labor, you know, anywhere from $75, $85 an hour. And so you're, you're twice what you went into this budget year for. And um, and if you still have agency in here, they're still over $100 an hour. And so um, it's not that I, I don't feel nurses need to be paid um, um, appropriately. It's, it's, you know, in, in the healthcare industry, you know, you go to the grocery store, 
um, and and the cost of milk goes up, they pass it right on to the to the consumer. They raise the price. We can't raise our prices. We can we can charge more, but we're not going to get paid anymore. We're our 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 um, rates have been previously negotiated. And so we get the squeeze between the high cost of labor, high cost of supplies, high cost of drugs, um, based on contract rates that we negotiated two, maybe three years ago. And, and it's unsustainable in the long term if we can't get either um, relief on the, um, on, on the rates or, or getting um, the cost of goods and the cost of labor back to some degree of normal. And you'll start seeing, you know, it, it affect hospitals across this country and, and systems who appear strong. Um, you'll start seeing some, some of them really struggle. Um, you know, when you look at large systems with large um, reserves in the bank, those reserves are cash days on hand and, and they're there to, to, to maintain your bond rating and there to maintain your ability to uh, manage your debt. And you start dropping below those numbers, you put the whole system in at risk um, and, and you get outside of your bond covenants. And so these, this is a spiraling thing that, that can affect um, just because we're caught in this squeeze around the cost of supplies, cost of labor, and the inability, and absolute inability to raise price. We only talk about what the market's doing. Um, at, you know, in the last 30, 45 days, um, all of those things, it, it's a, it's a, you know, you talk about keeping you up at night, it's, it's keeping you up at night. Well, um, I appreciate everybody's perspective on that. we got a couple of other questions left, and I also want to give Dr. Coopwood a chance to maybe um, touch on some of the other topics we've talked about. Um, so, um, each of you have, have talked about, or we learned in your bio, what, how you've balanced um, your time as an executive versus your time um, as a physician in clinic. Uh, how, uh, Dr. Forbes, I'll start with you. How did you determine that you would reduce or eliminate those responsibilities? And do you miss that part of the job? Um, any part of it that's still missing? Yeah, that's a great question. And again, I'm, uh, as I said, I, I saw myself as an accidental physician executive. It wasn't the career path I had designed and was a very, very busy clinician when I was in my practice. I just honestly have seen, um, you know, the opportunities to move forward with the business side because I was afforded some of those opportunities. Um, and that was a good thing for me. But now through much of my early career, and I've been a physician executive well, well into the early years of my practice because I was chair of a department and I was medical director, et cetera, and I ran the practice, I obviously st was a, still a very busy clinician. As I moved into other roles like, um, you know, uh, COOs and, and CMOs of systems and uh, chief clinical officers, and even in this role, your ability as a primary care physician outside of urgent care to have a continuity of care practice is extremely limited. And frankly, some of those positions tell you explicitly they don't want you to practice uh, because you have to dedicate your time. And I know that I've had colleagues over the years say to me, wait a second, isn't it easier when you go into administration? I'm waiting for Dr. Coopwood to laugh over there because no, it's not any easier. There's still long days, long hours. However, what's really important to me is something Brad said early on, and that's that street cred, that credibility that you have as a physician. And I think that's what distinguishes us as physician executives and why we proudly say that because being a physician, we went through a lot of work to get where we are today, and it's in our DNA. It's changed as a result of our training and experiences taking care of patients. We bring something different to the table, but I stay licensed, I stay board certified, just took my research yet again, and it's a lot of work. I get it, especially if I'm not taking care of patients every single day in the capacity where a typical primary care doctor might see those disease states on a daily basis. I've got to work a little harder to remember those things. What I do, though, is I have done part-time practice in some of my roles, 
and you guys, if y'all laugh at me, I'm just going to be so embarrassed. But one of the things that I keep doing is I do some of the telemedicine services as acute care telemedicine. I do it periodically just to stay in contact with that patient care. And I love it because I, I remember the days of seeing those 20, 30, whatever patients showed up in your office to be seen. There's something immediately rewarding about taking care of patients. Every single encounter has its opportunity to feel rewarded. Do not go into administration if you're waiting for that kind of feedback and that kind of great job, because that's not what these jobs are all about. But there's something very special about a physician-patient relationship that I would miss if I didn't do any of it. That's great. Doc, Dr. Canada, you're, you're still like you said earlier, a little bit uh, still in the clinical world, but you obviously maybe not as much in the beginning. So what does that look like for you? So, yeah, I, I, I still practice a good bit. And I, I would say that's my daily challenge is how do I, how do I make it work? Uh, you know, it's either maybe a half day where I have meetings and, and whatever, and, and then I have to go around in the hospital. And then I will say if I've gotten, well, I need to review this contract or something that all comes home and I do it at night uh, or, or on Saturday. So uh, I agree with Dr. Forbes, just because you're doing some administration does not mean it's going to be easier. I, I think it's, I think a lot of my administrative time comes on, you know, Saturday morning, I just pull up the email and everything that I have not addressed gets read and answered and and uh, because I was you know seeing patients on uh, on, on, on Friday afternoon um, so dr. Coopwood I'm going to ask you to answer it as well and we talked a little bit about uh, our backgrounds earlier and about how uh, you know the different roles that we've um, that each of you have had uh, I was hoping you kind of weave that a little bit into your answer as well as talk about the positions that you have had and um, and, and weave that into when and how you might have reduced or eliminated those clinical responsibilities. Oh, you're on mute, Dr. Coopwood. Sorry about that. Thanks for the um, invitation and apologize again for the my delay of getting on. Uh, I, I was a active practicing um, general surgeon in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, General surgery is what I wanted to do. I had a great dislike for administrators because they made you um, do your charts and they made you do all the stuff that you didn't want to do as a, as a clinician. And so I, I had no real desire. I had a life-changing experience. Um, I wouldn't wish on anyone, but I, I lost my wife and had three young boys and was kind of faced with, you know, what do I do now? Um, and opportunity and, 2000 and 2000 came to become chief officer at the hospital in Nashville, Nashville General Hospital. Um, and it allowed me to continue to do surgery. I was able to do Vanderbilt, the Vanderbilt residents rotated through the surgery residents rotated through the hospital. I was able to still do surgery and, and, and do the administrative things. It was um, tough, but I, I wasn't really ready to give up my um, um, surgery because I, I loved it. Um, but after five years, my predecessor, she retired and they offered me the job to be chief um, executive officer of that same hospital. And I thought I would still try to do some little clinical and, and surgery. Um, surgery is a little different than, you know, seeing patients in that you're your clinical skills, your hand-eye coordination, if you don't keep it up, you, you can, not that you lose it, but you lose that confidence necessarily, and you lose it quicker than you really want to believe that you can. Um, and so that one year just didn't go well, and I said, okay, I'm going to have a bad experience and lose both jobs. So I have to, I was at a point of decision as to whether I'm no longer be a surgeon am I going to be administrator or, or, or what am I going to do so I chose the administration mainly because it allowed me to um, touch more people on a, on a broader base than I could one at a time as a general surgeon 
Um, I haven't ever regretted that decision. I do miss the OR. I don't hang out in the operating room um, at, at my hospital. Um, and so it's really been over 20 years. Uh, it's been probably 17, almost 18 years since I've asked for a scalpel. And, um, um, you know, if you ask me what I do, the first thing still comes out of my mouth, I'm a surgeon um, or a recovering surgeon or, or something like that. And so it, it's that part you never really give up, but um, I, I could not be a, a CEO and still practice surgery. I, I applaud um, internists and primary care and, and others that can still have a clinical patient interaction doesn't require um, invasive skills um, because it does keep you nearby. It does, so I, so I haven't completely lost my street cred as a doctor. Um, I, I don't know why no one here in Memphis ever seen me operate, but for some reason I still get credit for having been a doctor at one point, a practicing physician at one point. Um, and, and so it, it, it's, it's from my perspective of, of the current job I have and the specialty of what I was in, I could not do them both. Um, I, I definitely couldn't do surgery safely. Um, and, I, and I couldn't, you know, miss meetings because a patient took a bad turn in the ICU, then you can't do your job that you're paid to do well. So that's how I got to this role. Um, and I've, I've, I've enjoyed it. It's been rewarding. Um, been in Memphis 12 years and I, I was CEO in Nashville for five. And so that's, that's kind of my story, how I got here. And I forgive my former self for hating administrators because we, we got to still got to do what we have to do in order to make budgets work and capital decisions and all of that kind of thing and do charts. So we, we touched on this with the other folks earlier. I wanted to see if I could get another quick response uh, from you because you, you kind of touched on it. You went from CMO to CEO. At some point along the way, you had to get some kind of financial training and education. Where where did you go to get that? That's well, interesting. I, I um, in, in, in undergrad, I was on the typical biology major, chemistry minor, um, track and I, 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 I ran into a, a class called physical chemistry and my sisters preceded me in school and, and they struggled and I felt they were the smartest people that I knew and they struggled in physical chemistry and I'm like, okay, I'm not gonna let this one class ruin my whole chances in order to get this degree. So I changed um, probably sophomore, early junior to get a it was a bachelor of general studies degree chemistry and business administration. So I got the basics in finance and business. Um, those last couple of years, I still got my prerequisites for medical school and I got around physical chemistry. I don't know if, if either one of you all ended up taking that class, but I sure didn't want to take it from at least the professor that was teaching it where I was. And, but it was, it was serendipitous that that was um, the foundation of my um, financial understanding and background, um, but being serving as chief medical officer where you're not in that big chair, but you're intimately involved in understanding what drives the finances um, also was a good five-year primer to be able to um, talk in a language that your CFO understands and that your operators understand. Um, so that's kind of where I got the, but I don't have an all right, I think we might have lost him. Um, Dean, we uh, I think we still have a little bit of time. Did you want to open it up? Those are those are my prepared questions. Did you want to open it up and see if uh, other folks wanted to to ask any? Yeah, I'd like to open it up for questions. Um, so if anyone has any, you know, just put it in the chat or, or you know, feel free to come on and, and ask some questions. Hi there. 
Hey, can y'all hear me? Yeah, sir. All right, great. Um, I guess, you know, I just kind of wanted to ask as someone who's not necessarily interested in an administrative role, um, but, you know, I guess I wanted to ask what should we be educating ourselves on as future physicians and eventually practicing physicians in order to effectively communicate with folks in administrative roles um, to one, understand the language and understand the motivations and what's going on behind the scenes so that we can, I guess, work together for, you know, the best uh, outcomes and everything that we all want. Um, so the, what should we be learning uh, right now? Because we don't have, you know, a curriculum that actually teaches about the business and administrative side of medicine, but it's obviously an important part of the day-to-day -day component of being a physician. I'll try to answer quickly. Um, you're absolutely right. You don't learn. I, you know, I learned this when I was a practicing physician. If I had a patient in the hospital for, you name it, some, um, some ailment, but they needed a colonoscopy, I'd call the GI doc. Can you come and scope them before they go home? It made sense to me. It made sense that I was doing it for the convenience of the patient, but I had no idea of the economics of that decision on the healthcare system because the hospital doesn't get another dime for that colonoscopy because it's an outpatient procedure. And, and, and so there's a disconnect between what a physician knows and understands. I was doing this to patients here, we might as well get a colonoscopy. Well, from a hospital administrator standpoint, that's the last thing you wanna do because you wanna send them back through on the outpatient side. Same thing with length of stay is understanding the importance of length of stay and how hospitals are paid doctor gets a, a check for the procedure, the hospital gets a check for the DRG, and it, it gets $5,000 if you keep the patient in the hospital two days or 20 days. And the hospital's motivation is to get that patient out as soon as possible. And sometimes that is counter to what the doctor wants to do. And you need to understand what's driving administration. Um, the, out too quick. Well, it's two different reasons uh, around the payment structure that that drive that are motivate um, um, in, entities differently. And so understanding that helps to find that sweet spot to be able to manage that process better. And uh, Cameron, I'm happy to jump in here as well. I'm going to take a slightly different tact. I really appreciate uh, Dr. Coopwood's response. I'm thinking one of your questions was how to make it the your your most effective version of you as you're a practicing physician, as you're a physician um, uh, seeing patients on a regular basis, whether or not you get involved in administration or not. Some of the things we already touched on, really mastering some of those communication skills, huge, you know, down to how people are perceiving you, how you're communicating. It will not only help you with your career and interacting with your colleagues, sharing messages, interacting with a greater care delivery team, it's going to help you feel more rewarded when you interact with your patients as well. I touched on that other topic about, you know, know yourself well enough in terms of how you're being viewed. Again, it's a great thing to be a physician because even Dr. Coopwood said this, that, you know, people still give him credit as a physician. He's, he's always going to be a physician. So there's an assumed competence there. Really pay attention to how you're being receptive with others and think about that warmth versus competence piece as you grow and develop as a practicing physician and perhaps a leader of tomorrow. I think on a regular basis and to some of Dr. Coopwood's points, be relevant be in the conversation, get involved, talk about issues. If you don't know about it, don't be afraid to ask. You know, take a stand on things and get involved. And as you become members of medical staffs, part of your residency training, et cetera, you're gonna want to participate and be part of it. And then just as, as you grow in your career, we talked about this one already, network. You know, get to know your peers and you guys are good at this. You're already part of this group continue to do that. That's going to be really important in the future. 
So uh, Rohan has a, a quick question. Um, he asked, what steps can we take to enter hospital administration straight out of residency? Um, I think he already has an MBA, so he's wondering how he can get involved as quickly as possible. I'm so happy to jump in here, if you guys don't mind, um, to my colleagues here. Um, I, I have to tell you, I have a son that's an MD MBA, and we've had this battle many times about, you know, what, do you, what hat are you going to wear? I have this bias, and I really think, you know, make sure you get some clinical tread wear on those tires. Make sure it goes back to the street cred. It goes back to people want to know that you understand as a physician leader what it means to be practicing day to day. So there is some value to that piece. But I have many colleagues I know that have not practiced medicine um, once they were done with their residency. And that's okay. Again, you know, be current. Uh, but one of the things that you can do as you have your degree and you get out of residency, we've talked about some of those things. Raise your hand, get involved, join some of the professional organizations as well that are focused on people that um, are healthcare administrators, American College of Healthcare Executives, great group to, to learn from and hang out with. They've got job posts. They've got people looking for uh, folks that maybe want a, a residency or intern type of position that's more business related. Even the American College of Physician Executives, which is now Apple, same thing. They've got lots of opportunities. And that really is very much targeted to the physician who happens to be a business leader as well. One thing that I'll just throw in that, that is sort of an answer to both those questions, I, uh, Cameron, really, from the, the practicing, not administrative physician side, uh, I work with physicians of all shapes, sizes, specialties, and, and all of that. And the, the communication challenges, like, such as the ones we've already touched on, are really challenging. And what I see that's very common, uh, and it's granular, but it's important, is when someone moves, when someone is new to the organization, when someone even gets promoted into the organization, there's a variety of things that have impacted that. There could be baggage from the person in the previous role. It could just be that we've brought in someone from out of town to come in in this role, that they're not one of us, you know, language and kind of backroom comments like that and, and being above and, a, and, a, and around all of that. And just and to Dr. Forbes' point, stepping up being proactive being welcoming um it, it there's a lot of um even when it's not gossipy dramatic friction type of stuff there's just a communication gap sometimes if you move here from baltimore or you move here from california and you don't know what it's like to practice or or run a hospital in memphis tennessee i mean being empathetic towards all that um to people that are moved to this community is that's it's a big source of miscommunication, in my opinion, is the lack of that sometimes. So uh, that's just something I see from my angle. So, so one question I had, um, so are there, you know, any specialties that tend to go into administration or, or does it matter what specialty you are? Um, kind of curious about that. You let, know, let me, oh. Go ahead, please, go ahead. Okay, yeah, I'll just have a really, like a short comment. Um, and I was thinking about this. Uh, in different specialties, I think your opportunity for roles, are, are different depending on some specialties don't even deal with hospitals that much. So like if, if you're wanting to be a, a hospital CMO, you, you know, like dermatologists don't go to the hospital a lot. Uh, so, but there are areas say that, that if you're into some areas of administration, say like if, if you're a surgeon or, uh, you know, being the CMO of an outpatient surgery center, or uh, say in my field, nephrology, we, we have medical directors of uh, different dialysis units. So I think, uh, you know, some specialties will certainly be involved with, with hospital systems more. There will be other specialties 
Well, I think your administrative roles would be different, but I think they're there. Yeah, and I would just add to uh, um, Dr. Canada's comments that, um, you know, it used to be that there were certain specialties you saw, saw a lot of at some of the professional venues for physician leaders, physician executives. It's all over though. I mean, it's, it's really focusing on what your leadership strengths are, what really makes you happy. You guys commented that, you know, uh, Brad and I were both smiling through our conversations. You know, I, I love what I do. I mean, not that every day is easy. I love what I do though. And it's been a blessing to have, you know, opportunities such as I've had. And I think that's part of it. People find what really gives them joy and they feel like they make their greatest contribution. So I don't think it's specialty specific. I think it's really that person specific and their passion for something. And then they'll learn the necessary skills and, and really grow and develop with that. Yeah, I, 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 the only thing I'll add is um, you gotta have the personality no matter what specialty you're in. Um, because the biggest, I think the biggest thing that we have in order to be successful in these roles is leadership skills and, and leadership skills really are, are um, driven by people willing to follow you. So I can think I'm the world's best leader, but I can't get anyone to follow me properly. Probably I'm not a good leader. And so a, a lot of times physicians, we, we have a innate um, confidence because of our, our education, because of our experiences. And that a lot of times transfers into being that leader that people want to listen to and people want to follow. And so I don't think that's um, specialty specific, but it you, you do have to have that, that little bit of aura that, that people want to follow you for with. And, and that's, you can't put your finger on that. You really can't train for that. If you have it, you have it. And, and it's, it's obvious in the way, you know, you were a chief resident in your residency and, and you were able to accomplish things as chief resident or you, you um, some other kind of social area where you were able to bubble up to see where you were leading an organization. And those things are, you don't learn in B school. You don't learn in medical school. It's part of your personality. And if you have it, and you have the medical degree and the education experience, you can leverage that a lot of times to get where you want to go. All right, does anybody else have questions? I just have one last question. My Wi-Fi is being in and out or else I turn my video on, I apologize. But I am an HPSB um, scholarship recipient and I'm going through the Air Force. And one of our job roles is kind of the act in that CMO, CEO, CEO position where we also do the finances as well as you know the direction of the medical corps. Do you have any advice um, for HPSB students and what we can do now to kind of start thinking the same way without that experience? You're making us all think. That's why we're all still on mute. <laughs> but it's it's a great question. I'm just trying to understand. So you're required to, to have an understanding of some of those functions like CMOs, et cetera. Can you just clarify that a little bit more for me? Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of a strange position in the fact that as you, so you'll go into your residency and your, um, job as an attending with also the jobs of a general officer, um, which means that in the medical corps, you're in charge of the finances for, you know, whatever your, um, your group needs to buy, as well as like the logistics of where the company's going and what improvements they need to make. All right. So now I understand. Thank you. So um, I don't know if either of my colleagues are, are expert in that area, but um, you're right. There is a special um, set of responsibilities that fall on the shoulders of folks in your situation. And there's not necessarily formalized training that you get throughout your educational journey unless you seek it outside. 
And I love something Dr. Canada said early on. He sought courses online too, to see if he could learn some of the information around the finance management, et cetera. So that might be one of your opportunities. I also think there's, you know, we, I know many of the organizations uh, like the uh, Apple, the American College of Physician Executives, that organization, you can be a student, you can be a resident, you can take their courses and their courses are also done remotely as well as live. So you have that opportunity. But I think there's some add-on skills and let's not forget the very basic way we all learn. We tap somebody with expertise on the shoulder and say, hey, can you show me this? Show me how to do this. Can you give me some of your secrets, your inside, the secret sauce, whatever it is. But that may be one way that uh, you could do it as well. But I'd probably encourage you to look around uh, and just see if there's some courses or some things that you could learn that could distinctly help you with those kinds of re responsibilities. And finally, I really commend you for thinking about it in advance and thinking about how can I best prepare for this. I would say to that also, um, and we're throwing out a lot of organization acronyms tonight, but um, local, state, and national MGMA and American College of Healthcare Executive chapters are going to provide some of that um, business training or business acumen that you need um, in those roles. Their student membership path is a little bit different. That's actually something I might be able to help you with offline. Um, and the other thing I would say is, you know, that, that's a great opportunity for this group. I mean, some of the things that you're going to experience earlier, perhaps, than everyone else um, in this organization, it might be a great, great way to kind of guide the, the programming a little bit. Awesome. Thank you both. Is there anyone else that has questions? Okay, well, uh, Dr. Forbes, Dr. Canada, Dr. Coopwood, I would just like to thank you guys again for coming tonight and speaking with our class. I know they're really excited to hear what you guys had to say. Um, and, and thank you, Clint, for hosting. Um, so yeah, thank, thank you guys. So. Yeah. Enjoyed it. Good luck thank to you guys. Thank you very much. Good Appreciate luck. Thank you. Thank we'll you. the recording out as well. Thank y'all, everybody. Thank y'all. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night.